0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Welcome to our church. We're going to continue to worship now in God's Word, but before we pray and, and dive into Colossians, I would actually like to read for you from Micah chapter 7. Micah was a prophet to God's people in the Old Testament. Most of Micah is full of warnings for the ways that God's people have sinned broken their covenant with God as as God's chosen people, full of warnings and predictions about coming judgment. But in the midst of that, at the end of Micah, this is what the prophet has to say to God's chosen people. Micah writes in verse 18 of Micah 7, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. I read that for you because, as you know, over the past 48 hours, Israel has been attacked. This is not a new thing in the course of world history. In fact, God even predicted, like what we see here in Micah, that enemies of Israel would continue to attack God's people. I say this just to call on you as Christians to pray for the nation of Israel, to recognize that, yes, the nation of Israel is God's chosen people, that God made promises that involve boundaries and political promises to Abraham that were then passed down to Isaac and to Jacob, that were then passed down to David and to a descendant of David who uh, is said that he will rule presently and physically in Jerusalem someday. These promises have not been completely fulfilled yet but the Old Testament and the book of Revelation point to the day when they will someday be fulfilled in Israel, in Jerusalem. So I encourage us to be praying uh, for uh, the Israelites, for really all of those who are suffering right now uh, under this violence, but uh, for us not to forsake God's chosen people. He chose them not because they are good, but because he is good. They're not perfect people, but they are a chosen people, and what makes them special is, is that they were the people through whom God brought the Messiah. God promised to Abraham that through your seed, seed being singular and what Paul described, through your seed, God promised, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That seed in Galatians, Paul tells us, is Christ. And so as we pray for Israel, let's also recognize that only those who are of faith are true sons of Abraham. Uh, That even though God has made promises to the nation of Israel, only those who by faith accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are the ones who will truly benefit in the everlasting uh, life that comes with covenant with God as his people. Uh, That God could even make rocks into Israelites, is what John the Baptist said, if God wanted to. But that we should still be praying for them. That most of all, we should pray that in the midst of this persecution, that they will recognize their need to turn away from their own dependence in themselves to fulfill the law, and trust in God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was born a Jew, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That They need to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Uh, so let's be praying for Israel today and in the days ahead as we get ready to transition into our message. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we don't know why you would have chosen Israel, a nation that didn't even begin as a nation. It began with just one man who couldn't have kids. We can't imagine why you would choose to make him and his descendants your chosen people. They have sinned in many ways, as the Bible shows us. They even continue to be full of sinners, just as all nations are full Yet Lord by your grace and your mercy you chose to give your promises specifically to them and through them so that in your in their weakness your strength would be shown. Heavenly Father, I pray that you continue to show your faithfulness to the nation of Israel but that in the midst of this trouble that they are experiencing that they will recognize their need for a savior in your son Jesus Christ the Messiah that was promised in Isaiah 53 son of David that was promised in 2 Samuel 7, I pray that they repent from their own selfishness and their own dependence on the Torah, and put their trust in your son Jesus Christ. Just as I pray the same for us here this morning, that we Gentiles from all the nations, that we will recognize that we can be grafted into Israel, as you write in Romans, by faith in your son Jesus Christ, that we too can be considered a child of Abraham and benefit from this covenant relationship that you have with those only who are of faith. May you work through your word this morning. May you be good and merciful. Israelites, may you protect them. May your spirit work in their hearts. pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Christians have a very complicated relationship with love. That word love is something that we're not quite sure what to do with in American Christianity today, because on one hand, we're told that love should be the centerpiece of our religion. We've heard it said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God. We've also been told that the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor, yet we can't help but get somewhat queasy or suspicious when we see other churches use love as a motto on their flags, and on their social branding, to defend things that we know are unbiblical. That word love has been abused, hasn't it? It's been a word that people will use not to express God's definition of love and to love him and others, but really as a protective word to give themselves license to sin in the way that they want to sin. You might hear people say, well, you ought to love me for who I am. You ought to love me and not judge me and and accept me for the choices that I want to make. The most often thing that I hear as a pastor when giving any kind of truth to anyone in response to their sin is, pastor, you are unloving. And the same with churches, churches that preach the word of God in all of its beauty, In all of its grace, in all of its mercy, you can't teach grace without teaching about the sin that requires grace. And the response is, well, that is an unloving church. So instead, other so-called churches or organizations will say, come here because we are all about love. And instead, they claim to be a place of love, but really they're a place of self but they use that word love as a barrier. So because of that, we're not quite sure what to do with love. How should we think about it? How should we feel about it? And how should true biblical Christians who have been saved by grace, who are called to walk in faith, how do we live a life that is pleasing to God with love? Paul is going to talk about that today in Colossians. So turn with me to Colossians. But before we turn to Colossians chapter 3, I ask that you actually turn to Colossians chapter 1 first. Because if we're going to talk about love today, we can't just talk about love as a feeling or as an expression. Despite what others may tell you, love is not subjective. You don't get to define love for yourself. You don't get to have your own personal opinion about what you think love should be. The only definition of love that matters is the definition that the Bible gives in the context in which love is put. So because of that, look at Colossians chapter 1. It seems like so long ago that we were in Colossians 1 verse 10. Here at Graham Emanuel Baptist Church, we preach expositionally. That's another way of saying that we preach verse by verse through an entire book or letter of the Bible to expose the intended meaning of, of that work and the way that it was intended to be received by the biblical audience. Because of that, though, sometimes we forget, as we spend a year on a book that only takes four minutes to read, that this is a united message. Every verse, every line, every command that Paul gives, every big idea that we go through on Sunday morning is connected with an overall message that Paul is giving to Christians, which we'll be reminded of if you look at verse 10 as we talk about love because in verse 10 you remind yourselves that Paul his purpose in writing to the Colossians was so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord the imagery was of the scales remember that if you were to put a piece of gold on a scale that would tip the scale and you would have to put a measurement of proper value that would show the worth of that gold in order to balance out the scales in the same way Christians are called to reflect the power of the gospel, the beauty of the grace of God in their life, to reflect that in their actions. So Paul says that you are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The question is, how do we know that we're doing that? How do we know as we think about love that we are actually walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? In Colossians chapter 2, in the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, Paul focuses on faith. He says that the only way to actually walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is by faith and dependence on Jesus Christ, not just for salvation, to repent of your sin and trust in him as your Lord and Savior, for what he's done for you on the cross, but also to live the Christian life in dependence by faith that you have been also crucified with Christ, that you're now dead to sin because you've been crucified with him, and, now you're, and you're now raised to new life as a new creature because you've been raised with him. That is faith. Faith is needed. in order order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But the question is, how do you know that you're walking by faith? If you were to measure faithfulness in your life, by what unit would you measure that faithfulness? How can you actually test yourself to show that by God's grace, you have actually been walking in a manner worthy by faith in the Lord? Well, that's what brings us to Colossians chapter 3. and That's what brings us to love this morning because Colossians chapter 3 is a description of heaven it's a description of our behavior as it will be in heaven and it's also a measuring stick it is a plumb line of what a worthy walk before the Lord actually physically presently looks like so whether you've been coming here for years or if this is your first Sunday this morning you have to ask yourself number one are you saved Have you ever actually repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ by calling out to him in prayer and asking for his forgiveness based on Jesus dying on the cross for you? If you haven't, you must do that today or you will die and go to hell. Or you need to ask yourself, if you have made that decision, is your life reflecting it? Are you actually walking or living in a way that displays that truth? Paul is going to get to the heart of that in verse 14 as he's talking about different behaviors that Christians should be doing when he says this, to summarize it all in verse 14. Paul says, And above all, these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The big idea for this morning, based on this verse, is going to be this that love is the manner in which we are to walk in the Lord. If you're wondering, how do I walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Yes, you can only do it by faith, but it looks like love in your life. You must examine your heart, your thoughts, your words, your actions, both in private and in public, and ask yourself, are they marked by love, both for God and others? That will be the measuring stick of whether or not you are actually walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. But here's the problem. What kind of love are we talking about? When he says, above all put on love, there's many churches, false churches really, uh, across the world that could use that verse and abuse it by misdefining, misinterpreting the kind of love that that Paul is talking about here. So, what we have to do is we have to properly define love today. We have to talk about exactly the kind of word that Paul is referring to when he describes love, and specifically the impact that love should have on the Christian life. We have to answer the question what is love? And in order to do that, you're not going to come to me. We're not going to go to any other pastor. We're not going to go to any other website, any other speaker, any other book. The only definition of love comes from the Bible. That is the source of the definition of true love. So because of that, let's look at Scripture. Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. You can look at these now. As you're writing them down, let me tell you that the word love, there's actually four words that exist in the New Testament for love. Maybe you've heard that before. The four loves is a common concept C.S. Lewis wrote book about the four Greek words for love, expressing different kinds of love. All of the different words for love in the Greek New Testament can be good. They they can be Christian and biblical and God-honoring in their proper sense. But the most common word for love, and the word for love that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 3, as well as in these verses here, is agape love probably heard of agape love before. What's interesting about agape love is that it's the most used Greek word for love in the New Testament, and it is the least used word for love in all other non-biblical Greek sources, which is a very interesting coincidence. The word agape, Paul did not invent that word. Jesus did not technically invent that word. God invented all words, but Jesus did not introduce that word in his the word was already being used in the Roman Empire in the years leading up to the writing of the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? But it was only used, mostly, it was most commonly used in the context of the battlefield. The word agape love was most often used to describe the kind of love shown by a soldier for his comrades, fighting on their behalf even dying for them. This agape love would be written down in monuments and in speeches used to honor generals of armies, uh, talking about holding someone in high esteem. When you think of the word agape love in its most simple sense, the definition of the word as it existed even before the writing of the New Testament was to hold others in high esteem. For a soldier to fight as if the life of the soldier next to him was more important than his own. For an army to love and honor and respect their general so much, to esteem him highly, that they would even march into the valley of the shadow of the death for him if that's what he commanded. To esteem him highly is what agape love means in its basic sense, And it's that root meaning that the Bible uses to describe Jesus and Christian love. Because unlike the other uses of love that often refer to feeling, which there's nothing wrong with feeling, what's different about agape love is that it transcends feeling and deals with action. Agape love refers to the will. It refers to maybe not something that you feel like doing, like jumping on a grenade, but it's something that you choose to do because of the way that you esteem others as higher than yourself. It's connected with action. You can't leave this morning without missing that point. That the kind of love that's being described in Colossians 3.14 is a love of action. It is a love that chooses to do what is in the best interest of others because you're esteeming them as higher than yourself. We see that pattern in the Bible in these verses, don't we? But God shows his love. Not just God feels his love or he tells us he loves us, but he shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very famous verse. The same in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Again, action. Action is connected to this Christian concept of love that is being displayed perfectly by Jesus and that Paul is going to command the Colossians to do in this verse. Let me give you one more example of this. Paul in Galatians, similar to Colossians, talks about how he's crucified with Christ. He's dead to sin by faith, being crucified with Christ. says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith the Son of God who loved me, but he didn't just love Paul, he also gave his life for Paul for you and for me and for anyone. Love is connected with an action. Love is an attitude of esteeming others as higher than yourself, which results in you acting like it, expressing tangible, seeable love that can be shown. All these notes that I'm giving you, by the way, I've given you the big idea. This can go under the general background section of your notes. you have done that already. But now that we've defined what love is in this verse, the kind of love that we're supposed to put on, let's talk about the implications of love in the Christian life. What is love actually supposed to do practically for us as Christians in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Let's talk about the first point love is the means of obedience you cannot separate love from obedience people often say well i i really do love god stephen but it's not reflected in their behavior well you're a liar is actually you can't claim to love someone with the christ-like agape kind of love that you're called to love them with if you are not actually prioritizing him in your life with your attitude thoughts words Behavior. Your actions reflect what you love. Therefore, love is the means of obedience. Let's actually look at the first phrase in verse 14 to kind of explain where we're coming from with this point, not that I'm just drawing it out of thin air. Because at the beginning of verse 14, Paul says this, and above all these things, put on love. You might remember from previous weeks that Paul is using a clothing metaphor. He's telling Christians that if they are to walk by faith, if they want to please the Lord, just like they would put on a shirt and gloves and a hat, they need to put on things like kindness. in verse 12. You remember that in verse 12? Patience, humility, meekness, that they should be bearing with one another, that they should be forgiving one another. Paul is giving examples of ways for Christians to please God and to walk in a manner worthy of him and he describes it as putting on clothes. Well, the metaphor is interesting in verse 14 because now he says that on top of all these things, in addition to all these things, over all these things, you should put on love. Almost as if you're putting on gloves and pants and a shirt, but then on top of all of that, you're putting on an overcoat that covers all of it. That's the kind of language that Paul is using to describe love. He says, all the There's no such thing as obedience to God that is separated from love to God. There's none. There's no opportunity where you can obey God where you are not also loving him. Love is the means by which we obey. We don't just do it to try to manipulate God into saving us or to try to earn something from God. Our obedience is worship. Our obedience is an expression of love. That's how we should understand the Christian life. Every time you obey God, it shouldn't be begrudgingly. It should be like a soldier jumping on a grenade for his comrades or an army marching into battle for the God is higher than ourselves. And because we even esteem others as higher than ourselves, we love God and we love others as a result. I have a few verses that help illustrate this point. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, Paul again uses an action word to say, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Romans 13 verse 8, look at this one especially, owe no one anything except to love each other. That's a high price. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Look at that last part. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All those commandments in the Old Testament. Honor your father and your mother. Do not covet. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Paul is saying that the way that you fulfilled those laws is by loving each other. He says that those are examples of ways that you love God and other people. Let's go to the next verse. Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, another example of the law, counts for anything but only faith working through love. If you want to live a life by faith in this earth for the Lord, if you want to display your faith in Christ for all the world to see, which you should if if you are a genuine believer. The only way to do that is by having agape love for God and agape love for others. And the specific... Humility, kindness, forgiveness, bearing with one another. In fact, all of the commands of Scripture that are given to Christians are really just specific commandments on how to specifically love God and others. Do not think of love as something that belongs to liberals, something that is worldly, that is not of Christ. It is the only thing that is of Christ. Love is the centerpiece of all that we do to worship and honor God. It is affection for him. It is esteem for him. We must claim it back and define it the way that God defines it in his word. Let's quickly go through the last two points. Point number two, love is the means of unity. Again, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. This comes from the middle of verse 14, where Paul says that putting on love like an overcoat He says this binds everything together. It binds or it unites everything together. Love is the means by which we as a church family are united. A church that is full of division, a church that is full of conflict, a church that has a church split every time something happens that people don't like is a church that has proven to the community that it has failed to love God in the way that God has commanded because a church that truly loves God will love others. And a church that is full of people who truly love others by faith will be doing the things in verses 12 and 13. They'll be forgiving, they'll be bearing, they'll be humble, so that even when there is division, even when there is conflict, even when there is a chance for a church split, there will be unity, because together we'll all say, we are called to love each other. We are called to esteem others as higher than ourselves. Even if we have a disagreement, even if we feel like we have a complaint against the others, we are going to choose to love, and unity is the product of that. That's why God calls for one body, one baptism, one spirit. Unity is one of the products of love. For the sake of time, I'll have to just quickly go to the third point, which is that love is not only the means of obedience, love is not only the means of unity, as we see here in verse 14, but it is also the means of spiritual maturity. This is what Paul means at the end of verse 14, where he says it binds everything together in perfect harmony. And I do think the ESV has the best translation of this. Different translations will word this differently uh, that can suggest different meanings. I do believe that the ESV gets the closest to the intended meaning. Because perfect harmony is not just talking about unity and perfect harmony. It's actually talking about maturity, maturity. That word perfect in the New Testament doesn't mean without moral uh, imperfection the way we use it today. The word perfect, telos, it means complete. It means mature. It means that you've come to the full completion of who you are intended to be. Recognize that someday you will stand before the Lord. If you are saved, if you are a follower of Christ, you will stand before the Lord perfect and complete, fully mature but that the process of sanctification that prepared you for that day when you stand before him, as it explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that process is a process of love, that we are called on this life as we are being prepared for our home in heaven, we are called in this life to learn how to love God, to find every opportunity in our life to love God in our devotion and obedience to him. Because someday we'll be loving him for eternity. Therefore, we should be practicing a love for him now temporarily on this earth. Someday we will be with our brothers and sisters in Christ in heaven, united with them. Even some of the Christians that you currently hate right now, that you don't speak to, that you don't want anything to do with, you'll be with them in eternity in heaven. Therefore, we are called to learn how to love with an agape love, while here on earth that is a process of spiritual maturity if you are resisting that kind of love uh, for God and for others you are resisting the call of the Holy Spirit in your life to be mature you are resisting the process of sanctification in your life to be prepared for your eternity in heaven love does win but it is only the agape love of sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that people die to sin and are raised to new life and act like it for all the world to see. Do you want to be that kind of church, Grand Emmanuel Baptist Church? Because that's the kind of church I want to be a member of. It's the kind of church I want to pastor. And it's the only kind of church that can offer hope to this world. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, the three words that Paul ends with are faith and hope and love. And in order for this world to have hope, it can only have the true biblical version of love displayed by Christ and hopefully Christians. So let's display that love for the sake of unity, obedience, and maturity. Stay with me. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to transition to baptism, to see how people are displaying their love for you by publicly proclaiming, their faith in you and the transformation that's happened in their heart by grace through faith in their life. I pray that this tiny verse in Colossians 3.14 that has somehow been preserved miraculously over 2,000 years, I pray that all of us will drive away today being impacted by it, that we will have a new appreciation for what true love is, and instead of feeling queasy towards it, that we will turn to the biblical definition of love. Shown by your son Jesus Christ that we may imitate it in our life by loving you and by loving others. We do this for your glory, God. We love you, and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so now as we end, we are going to transition to baptism. Baptism comes from a Greek word that means to submerge. The Bible says that we have been submerged by faith into Christ's death. The Bible also says that we have been submerged by faith into Christ's resurrection. When someone recognizes that they're a sinner and they call by faith to God to save them of their sin on behalf of Jesus' death and resurrection, they get to vicariously share in Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. As a result, Jesus' command to all Christians is to symbolize that, to proclaim that, to, uh, to, to publicly show that to their community by physically being submerged in water in order to symbolize how they have been submerged into Christ's death and resurrection. Being baptized does not make you saved. Being baptized does not make you a better Christian. Being baptized is not a sign that you are taking the next step in your faithfulness. Baptism is merely an act of loving obedience. It's an opportunity to share with friends and family and neighbors, what Christ has done in your life. So maybe you're here only because you know someone who's getting baptized, that you don't really care about this whole Christianity stuff, but you care about this person who's getting baptized. And if that's you, we're really glad you're here. We hope that as a result of these baptisms, you will be shown in a way too hard to ignore that you must die to sin and that you must be raised as a new person, a new life. That can only happen by turning away from your life of sin and trust. So let's get ready for some baptisms now. I'm going to call up Pastor Jay, and he is going to kick off our first baptism. Thank you, Pastor Jay. All right, Pastor Steven, thank you. All right, well, we're excited to
1: uh, do two baptisms here, second service. We did one first service, and we're excited. So I'm going to call forward David Kloss, and he's going to come up. Let's give him a nice, warm welcome.
2: <clears throat>
1: don't drop that in there. All right, why don't you let me hold that for you? We'll get to that in a second. All right. Well, I had a chance to talk with David. And uh, David, you've been coming to the church for a number of years now, right? Yeah. And we had a chance to uh, talk about his walk with the Lord. And uh, uh, you want to share just a quick second here a little bit about, uh, why don't you open that up for me so I can hold it for you. (laughs) All right. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your walk with the Lord and how you came to Christ
3: i got a long testimony and a short one. I'm going to give you the short one because it's too long. Before 2020, I can say I was spiritually dead. But on July 27, 2020, between 7 and 9 p.m., the Holy Spirit woke me up in such a way that brought me to tears in the middle of a casino. Three weeks later, after reading God's word, somebody reached in and, uh, my old heart, a new one, like a computer. Like putting software in a computer, it made me completely different. That's the sort version of my testimony. Jesus truly did everything. He's awesome. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you for sharing that. You know, it is really amazing to see how God does come in and change people and bring them to new life in Christ. And we sang about that earlier. We talked about that. And it's uh, obvious. And then the opportunity to share that with the church by obeying the lord's command to be baptized now david and i talked and he understands that baptism doesn't save you is that right david yeah baptism is an outward expression of the inward change that has happened in his heart that he just testified to and so it is an act of obedience but it's also a way to tell all of you and really the whole world that he is a follower of jesus christ and that he wants to follow god and follow the word of god and, and follow the steps of christ so He's doing that now by being baptized. Um, And so we're going to have Jim Hopkins pray for David. And
4: uh, Jim, go ahead. I met David uh, when he first came to the church. And being a former uh, Pentecostal preacher, I understood where he was coming from when he said, the Spirit of God led me here. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, it woke me up in the middle of the night and told me about the things that I needed to do to be saved. Well, I thought, kindred spirit here, because God leads each and every one of us to this place. And this young man, I'm old, he's young. He is so hungry for the word. And he, is, uh, he would always be early for men's Bible study, sitting out in his car, reading the Bible. He'd come in and ask a thousand questions before everyone got there. That's the hunger that this young man has for God. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing David to us. You led him. You guided him to this church, this body of believers, for a reason. And we're so thankful for it. We're thankful for this day that he has chosen to be buried with you in baptism. And I ask, Father, that you will give him the courage, the strength, and the anointing to walk in the newness of life. And uh, give you honor and glory in all that he does. In Jesus' name,
1: amen. Thank you, Jim. Well, David, because you've accepted Jesus Christ and uh, you put your faith in him, I baptize you now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. (laughs) Congratulations. Congratulations. All right. Now, we have a very special person that's come here in the second. And Robert Richardson, who is one of our leaders in our special friendship ministry, is going to come out and lead us in the next baptism of Nick. So Robert, let's give him a nice warm welcome as well. There
3: we go. I want to introduce him. Okay, this is uh, Nick, and he's been coming to friendship ministry for uh, about three or four years, three years, five or six years. Okay, a long time. And uh, he's got a lot of family here that's come to see him and friends. Okay, yeah, go ahead and sit back there. Yeah, so all all Nick's life, uh, he's had family and friends teach him about Jesus and uh, he's come to an understanding that uh, he loves Jesus and Jesus has saved him. And and so he wants to do this today and in an act of obedience and just show the world that he loves Jesus and that he's dedicated to him. Uh, we're going to have uh, Tammy pray over him. Uh, she's our leader with Friendship Ministry.
2: All right, so... As Robert said, Nick started coming to Friendship Ministry. It was before COVID, so it's been about five or six years. And he was already a Christian, a believer, when I met Nick. Um, And just recently, we had a lesson on baptism. And so it's something that Nick and Robert have talked about for a few years. And we had a lesson on it. And then uh, Nick decided, after we talked to his mom, that he was ready and he wanted to get baptized. So he's been a believer and he is following in the footsteps of Christ um, to be obedient, do just what Jesus did, right? And so, um, so, anyways, let me pray for you. Nick. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise you, and we thank you for Nick, who he is, who you created him to be, and we thank you for the work that you do through him, the love that you show Nick, and that you have made um, a way for Nick to be able to show and share your love with others. So we just pray for Nick to continue to grow in his faith and his understanding of you, Lord, and we pray that he continues to be obedient to your word and to share your love with the people that he meets. And um, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Nick,
3: yeah. Yeah. so you're ready? Yeah. Yeah. So you understand that uh, you're doing this uh, to be obedient to God and yeah. his command to be baptized? Yeah. And you understand that Jesus has saved you? Yeah. Okay.
1: All right, congratulations, Nick. That's terrific. Hey, and we're excited for everybody that got baptized today. And uh, we're hoping that maybe next time God is prompting you uh, to be baptized to take that step of obedience. So uh, that's it for our service. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful afternoon. And don't forget, we have our next step luncheon at 12 noon next door. God bless.